from this computer. Okay, we're on. Uh, I am here with Kat Torn, off, off, the, uh, off the release of uh, Scintillating Beauty uh, by the Humankind, Kat Torn's Humankind Band, uh, which is very quickly becoming one of my favorite releases of the year. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a stellar, spiritual, great record. I wrote down that uh, compared to your last record, I think that this one has a lot more resolve. The last album is a bit more tense, uh, and that, that's my first question, sort of, is... Uh, uh, it's sort of a two-part question, but how, how do you incorporate these non-musical ideas? Because I know that the last record was sort of inspired by your feelings towards the 2016 American election. Um, and this new record was, came out of sort of a glimmer of hope during you know, that era that appears to be ending uh, at the very least. Um, so how, how, do you, yeah, how do you incorporate that into instrumental music? Because that's something that's always fascinated me is the kind of where art and words kind of can't agree. Yeah. Agree, you know, it fascinates me also. And it's not always easy to achieve because as you said, it's instrumental music. Uh, I'm, I'm not telling you anything with yeah. words or my voice or anything like that. You're stuck with just song titles, right? So exactly. But the, and that does make a bit of a difference. The title of the piece Definitely. and title of the album and I do have something I want to say so I I do write liner notes for the last two albums I wrote liner notes um but I mean my job is to convey feeling through the sounds so if if no one had anything to read inside the album uh the album liner notes then I should be able to convey some sort of a feeling of of how how I want to express myself so um it's in top of my mind when I'm composing, I'll start composing usually with, uh, by improvising. And I kind of just fall into idea, at least for this group, it's always different, you know, for the different yes. groups, it's different. For, but for this one, I try not to think too much. I improvise, I fall into an idea and I explore that idea. And it, it uh, gives me some sort of feeling or sense of something that's going on in the world that I want to convey. Uh, I think pretty much all original new music is expressing something of the time, I would say. So I was trying to express something of the time in 2016 from the last album. And I started writing the music for Scintillating Beauty probably two years after that. 20, oh, maybe it was 2018. I'm just sort of guessing right now. But yeah. And the reason I was feeling this glimmer of hope was because after that, election, it was so surprising to me, the outcome. Um, maybe that's because I'm from Canada, I'm learning about, the, I don't know, but yeah. uh, it, it surprised me. And the hope I felt was because all of a sudden, the country was in this dialogue that was necessary, and a dialogue that was not happening before, where, where uh, I think there was just a lot of unknowns, and people weren't really expressing themselves. I don't totally believe people are expressing themselves all in a healthy way but at least it's happening yeah. and we're starting to learn about one another uh yeah. i kind of got off the topic about the writing of the music but That's but fine. yeah yeah well the the, the <laughs> hand of, of kind of people was forced where it's like well we can't just you know harbor these i don't know prejudices or or even uh you know just general sort of feelings about society at large anymore we it's it's got to be talked about it's in our face uh, you know, we've become incredibly transparent by and large, I think, you know, the idea that we can't talk about religion or politics at the dinner table is out the window, right? 
Yeah, for better or worse. I, I yeah. mean, ov <laughs> yeah. overall, it depends on the situation, but I think overall it's for better. We got to be talking about this stuff. Um, yeah, and with the writing, um, what was I going to say? I can't remember. Hopefully you edit this for radio. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll edit it for the radio, the, the <laughs> podcast version. <laughs> Pure, it is what it is hello yeah. everybody yeah um Great. so let, let's just talk about the record what, what's uh what's the process like i've never I, I i make music too but i've never really made a proper band album i'm, I'm mostly by myself so uh how, how do you communicate with people as a as a band leader i know that you've you've played in various bands pugs and crows juno award-winning pugs and crows uh, mm -hmm. thanks for and, the shout out Yes, of course. Um, but yeah, how, how, does, how do you uh, sort of take charge, but also let people express themselves? Because I know a lot of the music is improvised. I'm sure that, you know, you're not the only one improvising on the record and stuff. So. Yeah, I try to have equal, equal parts for like, it, for each, uh, for each instrumentalist, meaning I want everybody to have their voice being heard. So I write with that in mind. I, if I have a song that has solos, I, I will also write with the strengths of each member in mind too. So if I need something to be, you know, kind of have a lot of feeling and getting really big and on the louder end of the spectrum, I'll probably throw that to Xavier. <laughs> yeah, that's and the saxophone player, correct? That, correct. Yeah. He plays tenor saxophone on the record. Yeah. And there's a lot of really beautiful, delicate moments between me and Yoshi, who plays the oud on the album. Okay. And I think having this uh, quintet that's very dynamic, very has a lot of softs and then a lot of, you know, a lot of those small feelings and very big feelings. It makes for a really great 40 minutes of music, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I find too, um, it's a rare example of sort of a, a spiritual jazz record, if you want to call it, where uh, I, I, I never found that the beauty, the beauty was never lost, if you, if you know what I mean, um, mm -hmm. on this record specifically, where uh, it, it never feels dissonant at all, uh, both, both musically and sort of uh, structurally. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like... Yeah, I do like to play around with uh, drones and... Le leaving the tonality and coming back to it in a seamless fashion and having a drone underneath that can make everything a little bit more cohesive and it's a sound that I really like because there's this rock and there's this anchor and you can go anywhere and come back and you'll still feel like you haven't you haven't lost yourself yeah it's the it's the root under the tree or whatever right exactly yeah um, and that, yeah, that's something I wrote down. It's not really a question, but it's the, you know, versus your traditional drone music, like a la Lamont Young and stuff, you are equally exploring uh, emotion and feeling, but it's, it's stressing one specific, whereas with, with the music you make, it's, uh, it's, it's much more of a dialogue, right? It's this grander thing. They both have their time and place, but. Exactly. Yeah, they both do. Yeah. And I, um, you know, you'll see something in my chart that says, G pedal and begin soloing G Locrian ish. 
like you would you would see yeah. that in my music and then we'll see where it goes i tell i tell the guys you know it's like it doesn't matter where it goes we just this is where we're ending up yeah and then they'll see that in the chart too so that's that's something i'm curious about i'm not particularly musically trained i know my scales and stuff but uh, what what does it look like writing this kind of music like what is the because because obviously again as i said there's a communication and improvisation but uh what what do your charts like look like you know um is there is there a time structure i'm sure there's a chord structure of some kind but yeah some of the charts are really long probably longer than they need to be but i couldn't figure out how to make it shorter um like i think the first track is five or six pages long it is about a 15 minute piece so yeah. i guess that kind of makes sense yeah. But it's because little things are always changing. It doesn't sound like much, but you have to you have to write it down. This, you know, like the scale will change by one note, so I have to write the scale again, right. or the mode, I should say. And the mode will change by another note. The root will change. I have to write it again. You know, I have to make it clear for everybody. And then there'll be a little moment, improvise, and then there'll be an arrow. This is where we're ending up. Right. So. Okay. We have to learn how to work with that. And of course, we have to rehearse and figure out how we're going to achieve the sound together. Cool. Yeah, I've never thought about it. You know, I've listened to all these jazz records and I've never thought about how you get there, you know, um, the, the sort of DNA of it all. Um, so you have to trust of, the people you're working with. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah, that's and, another interesting point about composing. It's like, are are you composing for specific people that you trust and you know it's going to work? Or how, how do you write the chart if you're composing for maybe hired musicians that you're only going to meet for 10 minutes before the show? Yeah. That, would be, that would be very different. Is that something you've done before? Yeah, I, that is something I've done. And I think it's something everybody needs to have the skill for as well. Be able to do both those things, I suppose, yeah. I think so. Um, so I guess speaking of playing live and et cetera, I'm, I'm always curious. I've asked every artist I've talked to this question, but uh, how conscious are you of, um, an audience when you are writing, when you're recording, when you're releasing and when you're performing? Um, and, and like, did you find that feedback and any of that, uh, influences the creative process? Um, and yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That is a good question. Um, ultimately, yes. I'm thinking, I'm not thinking about the audience in terms of, I hope that they will like this. Of course, I hope that they're going to like it, but yeah. it's, it, first I'm writing what I believe to be my best music. And then I just have, uh, just faith that that is going to be received by other people. But in a live setting, because there's so much improvising and improvising is it's like a high risk, high reward endeavor, you know? Yeah. So you have the energy of, of the people that are in the room. Um, and that energy usually for me is some sort of nervous excitement. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It, I channel that in the way that I know how. So of course it's been interesting doing these live stream shows where there isn't an audience, but surprisingly it still kind of feels like a show, you know, there's a camera in your face and all this stuff. So even though it's not quite the same, I still have that same energy that I can work with. Cool. Uh, I was going to ask you just, just how, how do you, how did you, 
how did you get here? How did you get to making these records? I was talking to my partner in the car today about, and we were listening to your record and I was just like, how does someone get to making this kind of music like throughout their life? How do you get to this sort of plane of uh, like this sort of ineffable spiritual quality to your music? How, how uh, did you have any eureka moments at a young age listening to jazz or, or learning to play instruments? I can't pinpoint to a eureka moment, except maybe the first time I knew about freely improvised music. Yeah. I actually, I can remember that moment very specifically. I had studied classical music for my whole childhood up until I was about 17, I believe. And then I began studying jazz music exclusively and uh, there was a poster up at the college that I was at for my undergrad. And it was a workshop on free improvised music, like a 10 day workshop and went in every single day. And I was like, I don't know what this is all about, but I'm gonna sign up for it. Yeah. And it was possibly the first time I felt like I was expressing myself and I wasn't overthinking and I didn't have a lot of nervousness around it. And it just felt right. I can't say I was good at it at that time or not, but it still felt right. And I was eager to get up and play. And I hadn't really ever felt like that before because I'm a bit of a nervous person. Yeah. So I found it very freeing and I try to incorporate a little bit of that. I try, I try to write music where I can have that feeling in every piece more or less, because that's why I play music to feel to feel like I'm expressing myself. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very obsessed with that, that uh, kind of idea, the, especially with instrumental music. It's the, this true, it's the truest expression uh, if you have the tools to do so, right? Exactly. So you spend time practicing your technique, just learning as much as you can, absorbing theory and whatnot, you know, whatever you're, you're excited about musically. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to writing, try not to think about it too much. Try not to overthink if you can. That's yeah. the goal. And, and the music that you uh, seem to be drawn to is, is it's not very clinical music. You know, you know what I mean? Like um, it's very much expressive at its core, right? That's true. And that's, uh, yeah, that's something I have thought page, about. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Uh, I kind of am the kind of person that starts being quite uh, clinical, I guess you, as you said, or academic. Yeah. And then a short time later, I get a bit tired, like literally mentally tired. I'm like, you know, okay, I think I've got what I need to get out of this. And here's what I have to offer with that. And there yeah. it is. Well, that's, that's the true, the, the jazz expression everybody likes to throw around is like the, you got to learn everything and forget it, right? Yeah. I don't know who said that. I think people say it was Charlie Parker, but I don't know if that's true. Um, that's a good question. Never thought about who it was that said that. Now yeah. I want it. I'd love to know. <laughs> um, so I'm curious also about sort of the, the I just have a sneaking suspicion um, that there's, there's, you have some kind of relationship with spirituality or meditation or some kind. I'm, I'm just curious if that's something that is a part of your life. Yeah, it's helped me quite a bit. I, I grew up in organized religion and that did serve me well and it gave me a great foundation. Um, 
And as I became a young adult and onwards, I, I found more that Eastern religion spoke to me and practicing meditation and slowing down, calming down of the mind was really useful and just becoming aware of, you know, just change is the only constant and all those cliches when you, yeah. you really start to think about them, they're, they're necessary and necessary to, I don't know, study that and be all right with that. And it makes sense with free improvised music too, because yeah, it's absolutely. like when you're playing free improvised music, you're practicing for your own life in a way. Yeah. Yeah. From communication to meditation. Right. And yeah, find, exactly. Finding, finding the present, if you will. Right. It's very finding rare. the present, finding the change, finding it's, it's like encompasses literally everything to me. It, also in terms of, of uh, relationships with other people, because yes, I play solo, but more often than not, I'm playing in a group. So how, like how you react to what somebody else quote unquote said, and what I yeah. mean is played, um, what you make sonically as a group, the choices you make. And something I wrote in the liner notes of the album is, honoring the self and then honoring others, which has been really in the forefront of my mind lately, because, um, you know, out in the world right now, there's a lot of voices of minority groups finally being heard. Yeah. So I've been thinking about it quite a bit so when you're playing in, in a free improv setting, especially if you've sort of been on a discussion about the topic ahead of time it's really neat to think about how you're honoring others by listening and, and boosting up what they have to say or, or just letting them play, not saying anything, you know, whatever's necessary, but equally important is honoring your own voice. That's something that's overlooked sometimes too. Yeah. And you can aid the resonance of your own voice simply just by listening. Yes, that's true. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, so, I always, this is another question I always ask people who have experience uh, successfully performing music, whatever success means to, you know, everyone, uh, is, is the, the ego. So I guess you're someone who practices meditation. So that's something you're probably quite conscious of. Um, and how sort of, this, this ties back into, you know, feedback and audience and stuff, but how perhaps your ego has changed or not changed um, over the years of uh, being in, sort of a performative art? I'm trying to become more confident. My ego speaks to me a lot. Um, it says, you, you're too loud, you played too much, uh, you, it wasn't good enough, dot, dot, dot. Um, I, I would love to tell the ego to quiet down. And again, what happened in the moment is what happened. And yeah. to and to embrace that. And, you know, I, I, I had somebody tell me once, and I really like this, that any negative thought that comes into your mind is the ego. I was like, how, how do you know what, what voices to quiet down, which ones to listen to? And they're like, all the negative ones, they're the ego. <laughs> it just was yeah. very easy. Although what, 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 is a, what, a, what defines a, a negative thought, you know? Because is it... Because a negative thought, I suppose, can be constru constructive, right? 
But I think you can spin it in a positive way. Yeah. You're cool. right. You're right because you, you need to learn from your errors to, to improve. Yeah. But I think there's a way you can speak to yourself without putting yourself down. Yeah. Well, and you can just understand, you know, any, anything that you feel that you've done wrong, uh, it's already happened. Yeah. Right. Uh, maybe just we can only move, move forward. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like in this interview, I keep not talking about music anymore. That's okay. (laughs) I don't mean to do that. That usually doesn't happen, but here we are. Uh, it's just a conversation, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Um, I guess we could talk about music. I don't know. Um, you heard anything good recently? Any, any music that's really speaking to you? Yeah. Um, yes, I recently purchased the John Luther Adams book, his latest book. And so I revisited his Become Suite. He has these three orchestral pieces, Become River, Become Ocean, and Become Desert. Yeah, and is, I've really been is, enjoying listening to those. Is John Luther Adams? I listened to a guy named John Adams quite recently. Is that would that be the same person? It's kind of Steve Reich esque. The music. There's there there's a John Adams and a John Luther Adams. Okay, they're different people. Okay. Yeah, if it if there was no middle name, it probably was the other one. It was okay. the other. <laughs> okay, just to clarify for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So he wrote he wrote a book. What uh, what is his? I'm I'm looking him up right now. Global warming and art. And uh, yeah, okay. He lived in Alaska. He lives in New York now, I believe, and he lived in Alaska for about forty years. And his book is about his journey to Alaska and how he was a, a environmental activist and slash composer. And that's about how far I am through the book at the moment. Okay. Uh, that is always an interesting crossover. Silence though, so right? deep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, environmentalism true. and and uh, there's a word that people like to use about listening to your environment. There's help me out. There's a there's a word. Uh, sound ecology, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And that kind of ties. Yeah. And there's an artist, Andrea Pauly, that I'm quite fond of, who went hmm. to Alaska and she, she does like environmental art, and she did this f- album of field recordings there. Oh yeah. Just her out in the middle of, uh, not a, yeah, the Northern hemisphere, very much up there. And uh, just the sounds of just brutal winter along with the person on the radio talking to her. It's very hmm. interesting. I'd like to check that out. You should, yeah, Andrea so, Polly. Andrea Polly. Yeah, I think she's only got one like album album and otherwise it's sort of more gallery focused kind of stuff, but. Oh, cool, yeah, yeah. I'm interested in that. Yeah, this um, composer, John Luther Adams, he we earlier we were talking about how how can you write instrumental music and have it convey a certain something yeah and and i think some of his pieces really do an a plus job of that there's a string quartet piece called the wind in high places and it literally transports me to i really love hiking first of all okay. a lot Very so pacific it, northwest of you yeah. yes in, <laughs> indeed i went hiking yesterday here actually in new york state yeah, it was lovely um so his string quartet piece the wind in high places really transports me to the alpine those sh- short you know short trees and the wind howls through them and it's really impressive i i recommend checking it out 
I'll check it out for sure. Um, yes. Is it, it does, does he use field recordings or is it, is it conveyed simply no. with instruments? With instruments. And in his book, he was just talking about how he would, he would go out and listen to birdsong, but he would yeah. just sketch sort of the, the arc of it or, you know, like yeah. a general, he wasn't too specific. More like a um, map, right? Than a yeah, and I like that because that's kind of like how I work too. Maybe I would write something specific, but it would never really quite end up that way. Yeah. More like uh, a shape. I always find, yeah, the bird, the bird song seems to bring great influence to great artists always. Miles Davis, I know when he first got his trumpet, he would just listen to the birds and try and play what they were singing. Mm. And are you familiar Messian? with... Messian? Messian, that's what, exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, I love Messian. He's, he's a wonderful composer. Um, yeah, absolutely. And Ravel, too, he has that piano piece um oh i forget the sweet title miroirs okay anyway, i don't know but, that i'm a big i love ravel though he's he's really he's got that beauty down which i'm always interested in that like very harm, harmonious beauty uh yeah i'm really influenced by him i'm not sure if you can tell or not i, but. I can hear i can hear it for sure yeah i wouldn't have made the connection though just because it's, it's such a different musical context but yeah but I play a lot of Ravel just at home. And when I improvise, I feel like some of his structures are under the fingers. And yeah. I just, I really love that, that music. Yeah. I don't, I don't know very much about Ravel. I just like the music, but. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like enough. That's what you need to know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the music is really all that matters. I was like, you know, it's like nice to do a Wikipedia deep dive and get the greater context, but really uh, if it's out in the world, it, it kind of no longer belongs to the, creator whether that's a good thing or bad thing mm, yeah i don't know do you feel that way when when you put out an album do you feel okay this this is no longer uh singularly mine or, or my bands or whatever it's kind of fun to think about what how how other people feel when they're listening to my music to imagine it i could never know for sure yeah but the people tell me how much they loved such and such song and it made them feel this way which isn't exactly what i imagine sometimes it is sometimes it isn't but they have their own personal relationship with it and yeah. i think that is very cool but it's also still my, my piece i have my own personal relationship yeah. so i guess you're right it's like a combination of both yeah because there is like there's always an objective truth that only you will ever know to it but sometimes there's no words as we've talked about before for that objective truth to especially instrumental music again it's it's not quite like poetry where there might be a definitive uh interpretation yeah and who's to say who's to say that a, a listen another listener's perspective isn't also truth yeah i guess it is yeah i guess i guess there's there's that's true yeah uh, i don't know we're getting really out there now yeah i watched a movie it's called cemetery last night and it was about some strange mu movie about an, the last elephant on earth. And he was like leading okay. these poachers to an elephant cemetery. And the movie didn't, was like very vague and a little bit hard to follow. And I didn't really know it was totally going on at any given time, but I loved the movie because it was so beautiful and the vagueness gave me this, <clears throat> this like eerie feeling. And yeah. I said to my husband, I'm like, I can't, I kind of, I love this movie. It's so vague. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
like it's not necessary to always to say everything all the time yeah. and film i think as an art form struggles with that more than music at least from an audience perspective where people are not as welcoming for uh uh vagueness and, and open interpretation um with with some exceptions obviously like david lynch is very popular and his stuff is up for interpretation and terence malick to a certain extent but mm -hmm. i find yeah. that i find the audacity to be vague in film alone is like something i always am very much very much admirable towards in film you have you have it all though you you, you can see it you can hear it yeah. there's voices speaking more more often than the time so it's harder i think about that all the time is the the like how medium really does matter simply from an audience perspective where uh pa passivity or whatever the proper word for that where music is at all times a passive thing to listen to uh, but also the antithesis of, of passive at all times and visual art is can only be like engaged with in a, in a non I can't remember what the opposite of passive is uh, engaged active? active yeah whereas yeah like paintings and stuff is always active but it can just be a split second which mm -hmm. is very interesting it doesn't exist in time and then what film, do you mean a split second like I have a painting next to me right here I can look at it for a sec and then that, that I'm engaged but I can look uh -huh. it, right whereas music it's there. It's in the room. Uh huh. The Got whole it. Room. it doesn't. It's, you can't. It's not tangible, but it is. You know. Yeah. And then film, it, like you could stare at your phone and, and miss out on stuff, but film is is a hundred percent active engagement from an audience perspective, and I and I find that very interesting. Hmm. I don't know where I'm getting with that. I'm sorry. I'm talking too much, but. No, I I am interested too in that. I like the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I talked to lots of people about that. I because uh, I've always struggled with yeah painting and visual art simply just because I don't know I'm a music guy. Uh, it's <laughs> I'm like this is still this isn't moving, you know. This isn't uh, doesn't make me feel anything. But I've, I've tried my best to. Try yeah, it. but maybe certain paintings can tell a story if you feel absorbed by them. Yeah, I do know what you mean, but over time, you know, as I got older paintings have been more and more effect effective with me. I've What's really that? been enjoying going to galleries. I saw the Hilma F. Klimt exhibit at the Guggenheim. That was one of the best art exhibits I have ever seen in my life. And interestingly enough, I could, I could relate her art to music pretty clearly, at least to how I think about music and how I think about writing music. I don't want to totally draw that line because she's, she's like, I don't know, like a goddess to me. So. I'm, I'm not familiar. Can you, can you repeat the, this person's name? I'll give him a quick Google. Sure. Her name is Hilma Af, A-F, oh, with yeah. an M. So she, okay. she had a group um, of, I'm not sure how many, like maybe a, five-ish women that she would have these they call them automatic drawings if I remember correctly so yeah. this was a bit little while ago so I hope I get everything right but they would do automatic drawings together and be they would be channeling whatever they whatever word they used for a god or a spirit or whatever and they would chan channel these spirits and they would draw together 
And that kind of reminds me a little bit of improvising together musically. Definitely. We were just yeah. channel whatever you want to channel, whatever that means to you. And then you create this art together. Yeah. Um, she took it way further. She heard voices, I suppose, from her spirit figure um, asking her to do this large scale art project that was going to be housed in this special gallery that didn't even exist. But actually, strangely enough, was similar to the Guggenheim, had like a spiral staircase and all this stuff. And it was a massive project with tons of paintings. And then they were hidden from public view for decades until pretty recently. Who, who hid them? She, she wrote in her will or something. You guys are, I would, everybody fact check me. <laughs> she, yeah, I'm, she I'm wrote, trying to right now. Yeah. Too. I think you, <laughs> I know, you seem pretty on the nose from uh, my tiny window of Wikipedia right here. But. <laughs> she, it was either in her will or she asked a family member not to show anybody these paintings for 50 years after her death. Okay. Yeah. And it because was Because she thought that the world wasn't ready for them. Yeah. Looking at her and work, too, so it was totally died, super ahead of its time, 1944, and it's this—it's it, very much uh, abstract expressionist. So she, she, as they've been saying, she changed history in a way because her abstract work predates what what is thought to be the first abstract art. Yeah. Yeah, by and not only that, she's, she's a woman and the first had been thought to be a man, which yeah. is also interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I will deep dive into this. I'm, I'm very into the, I like my abstract art more than anything else, I think. It speaks it's, to the music I like too. It's all very like interpretive and stuff. Like I try Powell. to write I love, music. I got a bunch of books on oh, yeah. in front of me. He's my favorite, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah I agree. I really like Rothko too. Um, I try to write some music about her paintings and I did write some, but I don't, I don't feel like I've done it justice yet. They're more like exercises. So yeah. even if they just end up being exercises, I feel like I got a lot out of it and just thankful that her work finally, we get to see it. Yeah. I've always liked that too. I've, I've had lots of discussions just in my life about the, the fine line of appropriation um, where you can just look at something and you go, I love this. How do I incorporate it into my work without stealing or whatever? I, I find the idea of stealing a very complicated sort of thing in, in art in general. But uh, sometimes you don't want to start with a blank canvas, right? Mm -hmm. so, okay. I'm going to channel X artist through my own medium and through my own eyes and stuff and see what I get out of it. And even just as an exercise, it's, it's uh, how to break a writer's block of sorts, right? You know, the, the band, Cat Torrance Humankind, sort of started as an, as an exercise of writing in the style of Alice Coltrane. Okay. The first piece that I wrote for the group was never supposed to be a piece on an album that I would share with the world. I was like... I, I needed to write a piece for a class. I was doing my master's in composition at the time and it was in classical composition, but I took, I took one jazz class 
to for fun because <laughs> yeah. it was very enjoyable and it was a the the premise of the class basically was we compose music that we all just read on the spot so it didn't have to be it, it shouldn't have been too complicated but not too easy we play each other's music and talk about it more or less and I needed to come up with something and I'm a huge Alice Coltrane fan so it's like I'm gonna kind of dive into her style a little bit maybe I'll write something that sounds like it's influenced by her and then I started playing the piece at sessions and it was so much fun to play and everybody was just I don't know it's telling me that they enjoyed playing it and improvising on it and getting yeah. into something and it stayed in the repertoire so I guess that's a positive influence from an audience right where you go oh people like this this works or whatever yeah, and it was fu fun for me too. And I'm, I'm glad I kept it in the repertoire. And, you know, it's, it's part of also the legacy of music and the legacy of jazz, looking up to the people that came before you and learning from yeah. them and passing down what you have to offer. It's, that's a normal part of being a jazz musician. Yeah, constant, uh, in like the, in the grand scale interpolation, right? Yeah, I actually never heard that word, interpolation. Interp interpolation. It's where, Interpo you, it's where you quote something indirectly, I think, is what it means. Oh, So cool. it's not, not a direct quote, but to take... I think it's used in reference to hip-hop a lot, actually, interpolation, where you say huh. something in the same cadence as somebody, but you don't say the same words or whatever. Oh, cool. I, I love that. Yeah. Uh, I just I remember I saw it in the liner notes of The Chronic by Dr. Dre. And I, when I was, oh, right on. And I was like, okay. This is, I think he interpolated oh. Maceo Parker or something. I can't remember who it was, but. Yeah, check that out. Yeah. That's when I have to call my husband and now he's a major hip hop fan. Hip hop guy? Nice. Yeah. What is he, what is, what are, what are his guys? What is he like? Uh, well, by far his favorite is the Wu-Tang Clan. Nice. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's some, that's some interesting music too. That's like truly, uh, the production has got a lot of depth. Yeah, I actually wrote down a question. I just wrote down the importance of fidelity. And I guess Wu-Tang is a great example of that. And I mean fidelity, not in, you know, in marriage or whatever, but in the terms of, uh, you know, sound, <laughs> sound, sorry, in terms of like sound quality. Because um, I often struggle with, no offense to bands like Snarky Puppy and stuff, where it's, it's so glisteningly clean uh, that I struggle listening to it. It sounds very overdubbed. Um, and it's not like the, the jazz music that, that I like learned and is in my DNA and stuff. Um, and if that's something you're conscious of. Hmm. I mean, I kind of like it both ways, depending on my mood. Right. I want it to sound good, but I want it to feel raw a lot of the yeah. time. Is it live? Are your, are your records generally live? They sound live for sure. More or less, we're all, we're all in the studio together, but we're all in, we're all isolated except me and Xavier. We were in the same room and everyone else was isolated, but we all had sight lines, could see each other. So essentially it was played live and we did it that way so we could get the best sound quality. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I, I find, yeah, stuff like starting Puppet doesn't seem to sound live. It sounds too perfect, too perfect for my taste. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Live. I like it all. 
Yeah. <laughs> I like it all. Fair yeah. enough. I mean, they're, I've, them live is, is a different story, though, because that's amazing. Just skill on display, right? I guess I feel yeah, the same vir- way. Virtuosic. About, yeah, about a lot of, you know, prog, prog music, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not all of it. I, I like, you know, King Crimson and stuff. But um, yeah, tell me about Pugs and Crows. I listened to Uncle yesterday and I thought it was quite good. Very different from your self-titled stuff. Uh, and you play, you play, I guess, piano and, and various keyboards in that band, right? That's right. I play mainly piano. Um, and... I played some auxiliary percussion and some vibraphone cool. on the album, but mostly just piano. And that album is also different. It's not only different from my records as a leader, but it's different from all the other Pugs and Crows albums it too. Has singers, right, on it, uh, on all the tracks? Yeah, we, exactly. Yeah, we have a guest singer on, on the entire album. Before, we would have guest singers on one track per album. That was a usual thing that we did. And this time we went all in. And you know what? I think it's my favorite album we've done. Yeah. It's so much fun to perform that record. And I, I still, to this day, like to listen to it, um, which is a pretty big deal because I don't really love listening to my, own, to my own music all the time. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear that piano in the background, but <laughs> that's my, my baby girl. She's baby nine girl. months today. Nine months today. A whole yeah. other baby. Wow. <laughs> yeah. How is new motherhood treating you? Is that, is that going well? It's going great. I'm really happy. I, uh, it has changed me in ways that you don't even know, which is what everybody says. That's the blanket statement. Yeah. And of course, it's true. Everyone says it because it's true. Uh, it's also very difficult. I haven't had a lot of time. To, to myself and to think about my career and to practice the piano and at the you know she was born basically two weeks before the city went into lockdown, lockdown two or three yeah. weeks so so it was a weird time to you know all the all the things you thought might happen you'd take her to these little classes go to the library have the family over that that was not possible so it was challenging yeah uh what's New York is about to lock down again. Is that correct? That's mm. what I've heard. I don't really know. I'm in Canada. I don't know. We're, we're in a whole different situation, kind of. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they just Wait, locked what city, down. What city are you in? I'm in Victoria. Oh, you're in Victoria. Yeah. We had basically no cases until now. Uh, and it's going up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be in Vancouver in just a couple of weeks, actually. So I've been I've been uh, looking at the news and getting prepped for that. Yeah. New York, they they just shut down the public schools again. It had been hybrid and now they're it's bad. So things are they, they sort of shut down in waves and come back in waves. And you never know until the day before sometimes. Yeah. I think that's the only way to do it, though, is that it's such an unknown kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Having, yeah, having so, a child at that this time must be incredibly interesting because it kind of forces you to face it like, you know, constantly because you at the beginning, at least of the lockdown and stuff, you can't really go anywhere. You and can't really go anywhere. Which, in the home, you know, 
It, yeah, I mean, I didn't expect to go to any very many places anyway, but I yeah. did expect my family to be around. All my family's in Canada, by the way. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the borders were closed, so nobody's coming back and forth. And normally I would come back to Vancouver for the jazz festival. And I had intended, even though it was canceled, I had intended to come back anyway, just to, to be in BC in the summer, because it's obviously the best place to be in the whole world in the summer. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, so when I couldn't go back, I was heartbroken. This is the longest I've been away from Vancouver ever in my whole life. Yeah. So it's been close to a year now that I haven't been back. Wow. And you, but when I get back, Pugs and Crows are planning to do a little bit of work. We're in, in a distanced and safe manner. We have some little projects that probably is going to, yeah, yeah. Hope, hopefully that, that can still happen at our scheduled date. You never know. I guess you never know. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, yeah. Uh, from what I understand too, BC is what they're doing right now, at least is just, a, it's from what it looks like. They're just trying to save Christmas, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah Are they doing like a lockdown me. now so that, so, so that Christmas can be relatively safe? Is that yes. right? what you that's think? What, yes. that's, that's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Although the lockdown is bizarre in BC in that restaurants are still open. Bars are still open. Everything's still open. Everyone's still like I work in a kitchen. Mm -hmm. uh, I still like nothing's changed in that regard, but that's it basically. Like we're supposed to stay home, and there's X rules about hanging out with people, etc., which is relatively easy to follow. But yeah, it's open. So I, I just think if you're only supposed to see one person, and restaurants are open, how do you, you know what I mean? Like, do they seat a table of six? You know, you know what I mean? Like, it's interesting. I th yeah, I think it goes by household. So if you're in a five-person household, I guess you exactly, can yeah. be sitting together. I mean, I don't, it's hard to, to say because personally, I would consider closing indoor dining and, and the oh, gyms yeah. before the schools. But yeah. that's only... How, how do I know what the economy is doing and all the details yeah, with that? That's where I it gets complicated because but... it's, you know... I got, I've been laid off twice during this thing, two times. So yeah, that's, it's tough. Absurd. Yeah. I just feel bad for all the kids because that that's like an entire generation that for at least a year is, ha, doesn't have proper education. Yeah. And not only that, the, the parents suffer too, especially the, especially the mothers. Um, a lot of them have decided that they are going to go part-time or not work anymore so that they can help their kids. Educate their kids. I read an article about that yesterday, actually. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Certainly interesting. Yeah. Certainly all, weird. I mean, ho hopefully it all plays out. Okay. Hmm? Yeah. College is online and you, people are paying the same amount and the teachers have known. I'm in, I'm in university and it's bizarre. Had this uh -huh. switch for sure. Yeah, it's it's the the quality of education is completely dissipated in my opinion. Yeah, I'm sure it has. It's weird because you you don't feel like and I don't feel like you should have to pay the same amount and I mean, I don't know where all the funding goes or anything, but from a teacher's perspective, I'm also a teacher. Yeah. It's it's difficult to teach online and to do it well, you need to prepare and you need to, you know, like uh 
gather new skills. So yeah. you should be compensated at least the same amount because it's actually more work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as a student, I just, I wish I could go to the library, you know? Yeah, of course. That's where I get all my good work done. I can't go to the library. Yeah. So, yeah. I know. It's a shame all around. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think, I think this has been a good conversation. I think we can call it here. Okay. It's been really fun. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to just hit stop record. Listeners, okay. thanks for listening. This has been thanks. Kat Torin, hot off the release of Scintillating Beauty. That's how you say the word, right? Scintillating? You got it. Yeah. And it's, okay, the, I, I was, I'm double checking again. The quote of that comes from a letter from Martin Luther King. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Check out that album. It is among my favorites of the year. Uh, and I don't say that uh, lightly. So. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for coming. Thank you.